This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. You may not know his name, but you probably should, given the stellar track record he's managed to put together over the past 20 or so years. Dennis Lynch is head of CounterPoint Global. That is sort of a group, a firm within a firm at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Uh, They run a ton of money, about $130 billion. And their track record, especially this year, has been pretty banoodles. Uh, The growth fund is up 85%. Discovery is up about 100%. Their worst performer is Advantage. It's only up 50%. They run very interesting, concentrated portfolios. Their entire approach is somewhat unique. They're not um, like very many people. Uh, Maybe Will Danhoff or Bill Miller run a similar style of investment management. To give you an idea of how outside the box this group thinks, uh, they recently, by recently, a year ago, they hired Michael Mobison to be the head of their research just for the group. Mike has been on the show a couple of times and... I just love the way he thinks, and any group that brings someone like him in obviously is not your traditional Wall Street stock-picking fund managers. Uh, I found this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. If you're at all interested in how to build a portfolio, how to select stocks bottom-up, why the buckets we use and phrases like small cap or value or growth can be so constraining and really harmful to performance, I believe you're going to find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with CounterPoint Global at Morgan Stanley's Dennis Lynch. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Dennis Lynch. He is the head of CounterPoint Global at Morgan Stanley Investing Management, running about $44 billion. He has five separate funds his group is responsible for, Advantage, Growth, Insight, Discovery, and Inception, the largest of which is about $15 billion, and year-to-date is up about 85%. Dennis Lynch, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about CounterPoint Global. Everybody knows the name Morgan Stanley, but not everybody knows the name CounterPoint Global. What is the thinking behind a company within a company? Well, you know, I've been at Morgan Stanley, I think, over 20 years. And ever since I have, within investment management, they've followed the philosophy of trying to make sure they have a diverse group of thinkers and small decision-making teams. And I think that's a really healthy environment for trying to, to, to do the hard, one of the harder things out there, which is beat, beat the market. Uh, so it's been a great environment for that. And in that context, we've been able to build CounterPoint Global, our group, over the course, really in, in a strong manner over the last 16 years uh, with, with the great resources we also get from Morgan Stanley generally. So I think it's been a good combination of a good big, big-term philosophy from Morgan Stanley and, and then allowing CounterPoint Global and, and, and the key members of the team to be very entrepreneurial uh, in that context. So not to read too much into what you're saying, but you're giving me the impression that this is a model within Morgan Stanley and there are a number of small entrepreneurial teams within investment management. Is that right? Yes, that's been the model, and I think it's really healthy. I think there's been some good research that shows that you know strong decision making, particularly on the investment committee side of things, uh, tends to, to occur when you're dealing with small groups of and teams um, as opposed to kind of large bureaucracies. So look, I count five different funds that Counterpoint Global is running: Advantage, Growth, Insight, Discovery, and Inception. Are these all run as a group, or are there different managers for each? How do you guys structure this amongst yourselves? So believe it or not, actually, um, CounterPoint Global in in its totality is about 19 products globally, uh, Mm -hmm. which include uh, the portfolio management team in New York that I had, as well as the uh, portfolio management team in Asia, which uh, my partner and co-CIO, Christian Hugh, runs. Um, And so in total, we have 19 products. Currently, the uh, 130 billion in assets, 
And um, uh, we probably own about 200 companies, though, globally. So despite the fact that it sounds like a large number of products, we're, we're very concentrated in each product, and we're very picky about what we invest in. So it is a pretty small group of companies when you think globally. We basically, uh, you know, we run, we have two lead managers in, in two different locations, and the portfolios are kind of informed by the insights of, of the entire team. Uh, and we uh, go through the process kind of at the end of the process to figure out what should go where based on how big a company is, where it's domiciled, et cetera. In other words, you identify a company you want to own and then figure out afterwards which fund, which product is the right fit for it? Yes. Huh. That's very different than the typical mutual fund. Yeah, and I think it's a big difference. When I think about CounterPoint Global and how we're different, it is one of our, our, our big differences. You know, the people on our team are what we call investors. They show up or wake up each day looking for the best ideas in their areas of expertise, but they're not trying to find the best large-cap growth healthcare company. So if you're Jason Young, who's a world-class health investor on the team, that's not how you're approaching your time spent in your day-to-day. You're looking for great ideas within healthcare. And it just so happens, given that we have U.S. products, international, global products, and ones that focus on different market caps and different parts of the overall product set, we have a, we have a home for your idea. And so I think it is, a, that is one of the things that differentiates the team. So you went from being an analyst to being a portfolio manager. How challenging is it to go from analyzing a business to, to building an investment portfolio? What, what was that transition like? Well, I think, you know, there are a lot of different personalities out there, and, and I think it really depends on, on the person. You know, actually, one thing we try to do from time to time every few years is do personality assessments for people on the team, just to promote a little bit of self-awareness. It's always good to get, get a, another view of, kind of how you're hardwired, especially in times like this where we're having extreme volatility. It's kind of nice to, to remember that sometimes you're hardwired to react a certain way under duress, and maybe that self-awareness helps you make you know, more high-quality decisions. But in, I guess in our case, or in my case, um, I've always, you know, I, while I love details, and I I'm certainly can be very detail-oriented at times, I also love learning about a lot of things. You know, I went to a liberal arts college and so I have I I really do enjoy the extra perspective of learning about a lot of different industries and sectors. So, going from an expert or an analyst uh, in one area to being uh, an investor more broadly, I think kind of fit my personality specifically. But what we try to do on the team is is you know attract really uh, unique people, and then based on their personalities or and their passions, sort of let enable them to do what they do well. And so we've got all sorts of different types of people. Doing, uh, playing different roles. And in my case, I think, given my uh, you know, love for learning about a lot of things, uh, the transition probably made more sense and was easier than for someone else. So I have read a lot about personality testing, and there seems to be <laughs> two groups of thoughts on it. One is there's a lot of down and dirty, kind of oversimplified tests, and they're of no value whatsoever. And there's another group of thinking that says, hey, if you ask the right questions and you really dive deep enough, you can find things out about how people think, how they behave, and what type they fall into. So I'm going to assume you guys aren't doing anything um, down and dirty. You're really doing a serious dive into that sort of profiling of of various researchers and, and managers in the group. We are, but, you know, here's the thing about anything like this personality test, um, this sort of topic. Um, you know, so, and we have got a great diversity of thinking on the team here. Some people think it isn't very useful, and some people find it extraordinarily, extraordinarily useful. I look at it as a, as a low-cost way of getting the team together in one place and spending time as, as a larger unit uh, where we can, you know, hopefully, you know, bond and, and share share a day where we're sometimes even making fun of each other for our differences. Um, but I think that, so, so worst case from my vantage point, it helps the team uh, uh, culture. Uh, but, you know, we have some people think this is very useful and some people think it's useless. And I get both sides of that. You know, I actually used to think it was useless earlier in my life. And as I started to explore it, I found there, there, there to be some utility. So it really depends on the person. Uh, it's, 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 why we do it every few years is worst case. It's a it's a cultural bonding thing, and 
best case, maybe people gain a little extra self-awareness. Huh, quite, quite interesting. I find myself about halfway in the process that you already went through going from <laughs> poo-pooing it to, all right, maybe it's worth exploring and, and who knows what will come out of it. I was very disappointed when I initially took the Myers-Briggs a long time ago to find that yeah, I wasn't so unique after all. It, it was a lot more accurate <laughs> than I expected to be. So that's what got me kind of moving in, in, in that direction. But Reminds me of my favorite scene in Monty Python's Life of Brian. We're all <laughs> individuals. Everybody chants yes. uh, together. We're all different. It's pretty hilarious. It's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about growth investing in 2020. Obviously, the stay-at-home trade has been enormously profitable. Um, your one of your biggest funds has is up almost 100 percent year to date. Uh, some of these stay-at-home names like Shopify and Zoom and Twilio were these in your portfolio pre-COVID, or did you guys recognize, hey, this is going to be a long working remote scenario, and we want to load up on the names that would benefit from that? Uh, these, for the, for the very most part, these are all holdings going into 2020. And they were, usually our performance at any given period of time is more a function of decisions we made you know, a year or several years prior than it is kind of the moment, sort of the in-the-moment reaction to what's happening, and obviously 2020 being an exceptional time. Um, so we did own all these stocks that you're mentioning prior to 2020, um, that was actually a transition we made maybe a few years back. If you look maybe eight or ten years ago, you might have seen in our portfolios a large, uh, large uh, stakes in companies like uh, Amazon and Apple and Google and Facebook. And a few years back, we were looking at the opportunity set, and I think you know all good investing is opportunity set driven. We thought there were some really interesting young companies in some of the areas that have benefited more recently, not just from COVID but from secular growth. And so what I would say is we added things like some software as a service and e-commerce companies, you know, two, three years ago, all of which uh, fortunately benefited this year. And, and what I'd say there is I think many of these companies offer, you know, time and cost efficiencies to their customers or their clients. And, you know, in a time of general, generally in a time of crisis, you're going to see a more likelihood of faster adoption or people sort of looking more at the world from a blank sheet of paper standpoint and more likely mm -hmm. to, to do things that are different and change their behavior. In addition, so I think that's generally true, but, you know, from a luck standpoint, in addition, I think we were, for, you know, relatively fortunate at a tough time for everybody that some of the specific needs that a pandemic uh, required, like delivery and staying at home and, uh, and working and streaming from home, you know, certainly did, were extra benefits that, you know, was, was much more luck-driven than it was, I think, uh, us reacting quickly to the environment or anything like that. So that raises an interesting question. How much of these spectacular gains in 2020 for this group of companies is future growth being pulled forward to 2020? And how much is a permanent shift in the dynamic? Well, I think there's definitely some evidence of a few things. There, there's some evidence you've seen some of the fundamentals pulled forward for some of those companies, i.e., growth, uh, faster growth than expected coming into this period. But as you're alluding to, you've also seen pretty dramatic uh, uh, outperformance of the companies in relation to the rest of the market. So I think it's a combination of both forward uh, fundamentals being pulled forward as well as potentially, uh, to a degree, future returns also being pulled forward. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's not as the we, – we still really like the portfolios today from a fundamental standpoint, but – when you think about prospective returns from here, uh, you know we're not as we're not expecting the high returns we've seen over the last you know ten to twenty years at Counterpoint Global. But I think that's really true of all asset classes, with interest rates where they are, and especially real interest rates where possibly negative. It doesn't. It, there aren't. A, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of great places to uh, find new incremental investments. So we're we're mostly happy staying the course. But we recognize that by pulling some of those fundamentals and valuation uh, expanding uh, in the near term, you're, you're not likely to see the, you know, the, the return profiles we've been able to achieve uh, historically. We're recording this 
the day after the big Pfizer vaccine news came out, 90% effectiveness in a large study, and the market action was value stocks, I think, had their best day in uh, at least five years. Tech didn't do nearly as well. Do we think this trade is going to be um, changing on a permanent basis, or is this just a little bit of digestion as to what everybody thought was eventually going to come, namely some sort of vaccine, some sort of return to normalcy? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're a trader and you're really focused on, you know, the next few months or the next few weeks or a shorter time horizons, then I think you're very, very interested in this kind of question. And you might be looking at market activity as a barometer for uh, whether or not there's been a, a really dramatic, well, there's certainly been a very dramatic short-term impact to, to that news. Whether or not that it sustains itself, you know, it's very hard to predict. And certainly we don't, we don't have a strong view as to whether that'll continue um, or not in the very short term. I think it's great news in general. <laughs> I think the economy is, is going to be a lot bigger five to seven years from now, the sooner we get out of this. Uh, and you know, it's hard to sustain an economy through fiscal stimulus and other means. Um, and that's not good for anybody, including the companies that have done, you know, the small group of companies that have done really well this year. So I look at it as a positive development. Having said that, it's also there's also a lot of unknowns and uncertainty. I think, um, you know, how fast we can get the, uh, any, any sort of functional vaccine um, distributed and implemented. Uh, there are, you know, other things that can also still still go wrong in terms of, you know, mutations of the virus, et cetera. So this is still a, a time of uncertainty. Usually, when you see the sort of dramatic change in things, it just it, what it does tell you is that how, how people might have been positioned in the short term that are trying to make short term profits. And so obviously, this suggests that some people were, you know, yeah, there's there, there's these stocks have become popular in the short term. And that, um, you know, the people that need to protect their short-term gains or think in terms of those smaller increments of time are going to, you know, have a, have a problem. You know, I think even at the end of last year, for example, you know, our stocks weren't doing – some of the stocks that have done so well this year were doing terribly in relation to the market in, in the fourth quarter. And when we didn't do as badly in the initial drawdown um, in, in, in post-COVID occurring, let's say, in, in, in March, April – I think part of that had to do with, you know, some of the people that are short-term oriented didn't own our stocks at that point because their relative momentum was pretty terrible at the end of last year. So this is not the fun part of being a long-term investor because, you know, we're, we're all human and you're going to experience these kinds of times. But uh, how we think about the decision-making and how we're, you know, kind of making our choices, it's more of a three- to five-year thing. And uh, it requires being uh, being able to zoom out from time to time and recognize that the rest of the market's going to focus on short-term uh, reactions sometimes more than you'd like. So so let's briefly discuss that short-term reaction back in February and March. In a very short period of time, I want to say five or six weeks, the S&P 500 was down 34%. You're running some pretty high, uh, high beta names and a lot of volatility. How do you manage around a drawdown like that, is it merely, you know, the cost of admission if you're going to own some of these um, high-flying names? Well, it's pretty interesting, right? Because you, as, you, as you, you use the word beta, which is obviously the modern portfolio, you know, uh, proxy for risk. And one would have guessed that if, if, if you're, you had a higher-than-average beta uh, profile in your portfolio, that if the market was going to have the drawdown it did earlier in the year, that these stocks or those stocks would do worse, and it actually wound up being the opposite, which is pretty amazing. But I think what shows you is the limitations of quantifying risk in that way. Or really, you know, some, we love quantifying things, right? But sometimes it really only tells us so much, and we can kind of overly that oversimplification can lead to overconfidence. So, uh, meanwhile, now you have the opposite happening, where um, you know you have good news and, and uh, these companies going going in the direction, at least temporarily. So. Um, you know, I, I guess how we think about drawdowns are, you know, they are part of investing in general. Uh, and no matter what you do, you're going to have any successful investment over time that's publicly traded usually has some drawdown period. And we've lived through so many of them over the last two decades. I mean, I, I can remember vividly 
having a large position in Facebook uh, after they had come public and having the stock go down 60% at a time when I believe the market was up pretty significantly. And that was a very challenging time. And the way we think about risk generally is not really beta. It's more about company-specific fundamentals and exposures. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to make sure we build a portfolio that has, you know, um, exposure to all parts of the economy so it's not one big bet. Um, But from time to time, on a company-specific basis and even sometimes uh, on a short-term correlated basis with a group of companies, you can have these drawdowns, and they're, and they're painful. And I think it's why Warren Buffett says, you know, it's not really about how smart you are investing. It's more about your temperament. And this is the, these are the time frames where you kind of learn a lot about a team and, um, you know, whether they can handle that and also your clients. And, and there has to be a nice, uh, you know, hopefully symbiotic relationship where your clients understand that that's a part of the equation, that you're going to experience them from time to time. So while we would love to avoid them, um, at the same time, I think it is a part of any any successful investment in a public market that you're going to have these kind of really dramatic swings. And the way we think about it is not really trying to figure out things like beta or whether some companies are currently correlating that because um, that maybe don't have real fundamental correlation long term. We think about it more on a company specific level and making sure we we believe in those companies, the co- people running them the skin in the game of the people running them, hopefully. There's a lot, often mostly in our case, a lot of equity ownership of the management teams. And then just thinking first principles, are we, are we betting on one big thing or not? And sometimes everyone else thinks you're betting on one thing. But I, my, my guess is when we look back in five years, many of the companies that are being grouped into some of these artificial classifications like work from home or, or you know, Fang or you know the Four Horsemen. These types of things that you know are used from time to time to discuss markets. If you look later on, you know, five, three, five, ten years later, often the outcomes are very different on a company-specific level. And part of our job is to be able to communicate that with our clients when we live through periods like this. So, last question in this area: You mentioned not everything can be quantified. How much of the success of these portfolios of the past few years is driven by quantitative analytics, and how much of it is more qualitative insights into the potential of the underlying business? I, you know, definitely, I put most of it in that second category, which is, uh, you know, certainly so much of our time is spent on numbers in the industry when we do our research. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that the, this is more of an insight business and a creative business and, and looking at the world differently or, or looking at an idea differently than the rest of the world and trying to understand what that is as part of the process. So I think we're, we're much more qualitatively driven. That doesn't mean we're anti-quant. You know, I think a good cult investment culture is constantly thinking about, you know, um, alternatives and not being closed-minded but being open. Uh, I do think generally the problem with quantitative or algorithmic or, you know, kind of uh, very specific rule of thumb based investing is that the markets are complex adaptive systems that change over time. So the idea that they, while it's appealing at a human and emotional level that there might be some secret formula that always works or works for an extended period of time, I, I generally think that's a bad uh, thought given that like the markets today are so different even than they were three to five years ago in terms of the level of passive investing or the number of hedge funds or the types of companies in the markets that comprise the markets. You know, So it's very hard to think in those terms. It doesn't mean quantitative can't be a useful tool in some ways, maybe in helping us conduct our research, but generally we're set up more in the judgment business and the qualitative assessment business. And I think that, that given the nature of markets, that you have to have that as part of your DNA. So, Dennis, let's talk a little bit about being an active manager and being uh, a manager that's running a concentrated portfolio. It's been pretty tough for active managers the past decade. How have you been able to stand out um, from from the move to uh, towards passive? Well, I think, you know, if you think about the investment industry, it's, it's, it's become over time, maybe as a mature industry, very compartmentalized. And so... Most people have a very specific area that they're focused on. Maybe it's small cap growth or international large cap value. So I think to some degree that's a bit of a trap and people get 
lose perspective in being so compartmentalized in their knowledge. So I think one thing we've done, and we talked about this up front, is as a team, we're structured in a way that the investors, you know, spend their time looking for great ideas regardless of those, that at the end objective of those kinds of compartments. And I think that that additional perspective is, is valuable and useful when we look at the opportunity set. It gives us a different perspective. The fact that, you know, Sam Chinani, who's a world-class Internet investor, can look at small-cap companies that could disrupt large-cap companies or large-cap or, or non-U.S. companies that can hurt the small-cap companies, I think is something that not all teams share and I think is a huge uh, competitive advantage from a structural standpoint. I think also, you know, we, we look at great, I think really good investing over a long period of time is opportunity set driven. And that's how we kind of define ourselves. Um, we don't think in terms of that sort of the value growth and some of the sort of the standard nomenclature. Um, and I think, cause, cause the, as we said before, the, the, the markets continue to evolve. It's a complex adaptive system. So the, the, the behaviors and ideas you had 20 years ago might no longer be going to uh, leading to success today. And when I think about my own career, I, I went to Columbia Business School, and I was um, uh, got the chance to learn a lot about things like return on invested capital and free cash flow yield. This was back, you know, back in 19, the late 1990s. And when I got into the investment industry, I was surprised how little people were focused on those metrics. This was probably around the time when Joel Greenblatt wrote a, wrote a book, like I think it's called a little book that beats the market about those kind of variables, ROIC and free cash flow. And I think for quite some time, being more focused on that than sort of say earnings and PE multiples were, was sort of a, an interesting way of of looking at at the opportunities in the market differently than other people. When I then you know when I think about our experience halfway through the twenty years. Uh, having some success with companies like Amazon and Facebook before they had reported earnings, um, you know, it led us to con- continue to be open to the idea that, you know, investing through the income statement can be a good idea. And more recently, I think there's a, a little more recognition that investing today for on the corporate level is happening more from a into things like an intangible assets relative to tangible assets. And so that can lead to things like lack of earnings, but not necessarily uh, bad decision-making at the corporate level or something bad about the business. So that openness and, and, and a willingness to look at the different opportunities out there uh, also has led us more recently to some of the companies that have succeeded more recently. Um, so I think overall the team has an open mindset, um, but also we're constantly trying to understand where the best ideas are today in the markets, given the fact we have a global mandate. And I think it's the perspective plus that openness that hopefully leads to an a environment where we can succeed. Huh. So you, you're echoing some of the thoughts I've heard from people like Will Danoff at Fidelity or Bill Miller, formerly of Leg Mason now with his own shop, as well as Joel Greenblatt, who, who have said if you're just looking at P.E. ratios, you're missing a lot of the pictures. Is that something um, that has evolved uh, over the past 20 years? Have there been a group of people who recognized that and basically profited from it while a lot of people were stuck in the old dynamic, or am, or am I overstating that? Well, I definitely think to, to an extent that is true, that um, you know, if you define yourself so narrowly in, in, in any business, but in particular in this business as you know, a low PE investor or a high PE investor or a low you know, price to sales, or if you, if, you, if you sort of identify too much as one variable, uh, and you're not open to thinking about how uh, the actual economic circumstances in, re- in reality might affect those variables, and, and, and i.e., intangible capital being more valuable in those investments than they have been historically, and, and more important and more necessary. Then I think it's just important not to anchor on I can't you know buy something because of one variable. I mean, the reality is. Uh, real life is more complex than that, and looking at a lot of different vantage points, I think, can help you understand a situation more fully. And in this case, um, I think what you're saying has some validity because sometimes people, just to keep it, okay, it's, it's easy. We all got to get through our days, and it's a lot easier to live with rules of thumb or that either you identify with a tribe or you identify with an approach and, and just stick to that than it is to kind of Think, try to think beyond some of those things and explore uh, the ideas that might be the drivers behind them. So we've mostly been discussing the factors and decision-making behind selecting a stock. 
But a number of studies have discovered that the bigger challenge is identifying when to sell a stock. That seems to be where all the profits are made, and it also seems to be where all the mistakes are made. How do you determine when to sell something that's been in your portfolio, either for a short time and it looks like you're wrong, or for a longer time and it's gone as far as you might think it might go? Well, yeah, there's several reasons we'll sell. I mean, the first uh, that comes to mind is diversification. Sometimes uh, com- you know, part of the portfolio just gets too big, and, and we need to think about that to some degree. On an indi- Now I'm talking primarily on an individual company-specific name basis that we don't want to have too much exposure to one idea at some point, no matter how strong it's been. Um, that then we also might sell because we think the risk-reward is no longer as compelling as other ideas that we're looking at. So that would be under the valuation um, uh, bucket of, of, of selling. Um, there, I think it's important to dist- important distinction, like you, you mentioned earlier, around you know PEs and such. You know what we're really looking at when I say valuation is what's the market cap today, and based on our analysis over the next five and ten years, where can the market cap be? Not necessarily a multiple, because um, I think people mm-hmm. sort of conflate that. They, when you hear the word valuation, it usually means what someone really means is a short-term multiple, and again, that's a simplification. It's not really giving you a full picture of, of the potential of a company, uh, in, in, in my mind. Um, and then finally, we'll sell because the thesis changes, right? So that we're, we're constantly focused on competitive, the competitive landscape that our companies are operating in and monitoring that you know, every second of the day. And from time to time, you know, threats will emerge for our companies that are competitive, and it might be from a company that's disruptive and young and, and, and most people aren't following it, or it could be from an existing company trying to follow some sort of bundling type of um, approach. Um, but we will closely watch how that's changing, and that might be a variable that hasn't shown up yet in the company's uh, results, but that we're starting to anticipate that the uniqueness of the company and their competitive advantage is in what we thought it was. Let's talk a little bit about how you construct portfolios and, and what they look like. And, and one of the first questions I have to ask is you have fairly concentrated portfolios. How do you know what's too concentrated? How do you figure out how to size various positions? Sure. Well, look, I think there are only so many great ideas globally, right? And so I think um, and as I've mentioned, uh, you know, we're opportunity set driven. So you're right. Today, we're, we're fairly concentrated in relation to what you might expect uh, generally within the mutual fund industry. Um, but right now, or at least in the last few years, we've thought there were just a unique group of companies that warranted taking a larger position and maybe slightly more concentration, given our conviction in their competitive advantage and the opportunity that they have in front of them. Um, I also think, though, that it's it's bad to be dogmatic. You can have another environment or an opportunity set where you want to own some more names, so where more names make the cut, and that might affect the weighting that you are going to um, allocate to all the, the names that you currently already own or want to continue to own. So uh, we generally, though, are going to be more uh, active and different than the market by our DNA, and I think a big part of our culture is a willingness to be different. It's, it's you know... You don't want to just be a contrarian in life. Uh, as I think Jeff Bezos has said, it's, you know, being a contrarian is usually wrong. But, when, you know, but, but the big ideas and the big kind of gains in life occur when you are willing to be a little bit outside of the, or away from the crowd or against the crowd, and you have to have that in your DNA. But in terms of our general thought around sizing, generally when we have a core position that we think really fits all of our criteria, you know, it's usually going to be a two and a half or three and a half percent of the portfolio type of allocation at cost initially. Um, occasionally, we'll have ideas that are uh, a little more speculative, but have maybe some binary components to them. Things like biotech might fit there, uh, or, uh, or there's some limitation, but the upside's significant enough for us to want to make a small allocation. In that case, we'll, we'll own things that even in the, in the small, small as like a 50 basis point increment. Because, you know, what I would call that is, you know, betting small to win big, where you're, you're not risking much, but it is still, it's kind of worth it in the context of the overall portfolio because the upside is so great. And, you know, I think more broadly away from even the funds we manage, like, you know, somebody might put Bitcoin into that category, you know, as a personal investment, you know, amount that you're willing to sort of take a risk that 
this is going to zero, but you're opening up your overall portfolio to some big upside potential and maybe even potential that can help, you know, at a time of crisis, you know, something that's anti-fragile or that can benefit from disorder while the rest of your portfolio is going down is always appealing. So the bottom line is, you know, we have our core position size, as I mentioned. We think a little bit about speculative value and speculation um, and, and binary outcomes and manage that risk by with sizing the port, those ideas properly. I think there really aren't any bad ideas in, in life. I mean, obviously, you could, probably, you could probably come up with a really bad idea, but just it's really about sizing. <laughs> I you know, if you bet, if you bet one penny out of a dollar, you know, uh, you really can only lose. You really haven't lost much if, if you lose. So it's really about uh, sizing, not you know. And sizing is a function of our conviction and the quality of the idea. Right, and and obviously, anytime you have an opportunity for a really asymmetrical risk reward bet, you you can do that with one percent. Yes, and, so, and it really so you depends mentioned- on you and and per- personality, right? Some people might think one percent is too much or not enough, and for us, at least at the, for our funds, it's that's usually more of a you know, 50 cents out of a dollar, 50 basis points. Gotcha. So so you mentioned Jeff Bezos and Amazon.com, but I'm curious about your process. How What brings you to names like Amazon and Shopify and Slack and Zoom and Moderna, not specifically the work-from-home theme, but what was the pre-2020 approach that led you to these companies? Is it growth? Is it... Is it growth at a reasonable price? Is it um, the the unique winner-take-all companies with a moat around their business? What what's the thinking that leads you here? I mean, those are some actually good 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 stabs at it. Uh, I think our ideas tend to emerge from all the all the activities of the people on the team. We've been lucky to have people on the team for you know I think uh, I think we've had very little turnover over the last 16 years, so we're, we're proud of that. And part of the benefit of them being in one place for a long period of time is they get to develop really stable and contact networks with an industry, companies, corporate world, the investment world, et cetera. So we always have ideas. They tend to emerge from our research and our daily activities. But you're right. We're, we're, there are certain things we're looking for. It's not from screening for high growth rates or something of that nature. It's more uh, certain characteristics jump out at us, like inside ownership. Like a lot of these cases that you just mentioned, or at least many of them, you have, you know, the, the founder or the person in charge has a large equity stake, a lot of skin in the game. So that's always really interesting to us when you have somebody who's not just, you know, um, the CEO and, and managing a business, uh, but really someone who acts like an owner. Similarly for us, you know, our team has a lot of ownership of our products. I mentioned, we, you know, we have a large, large number of products across the platform. I personally have money in every one of them. I don't think you should start a product unless you think it can succeed and are you willing to put direct investment in. In addition, I think what's great is Morgan Stanley, through its deferred compensation program, uh, forces you, whether you like it or not, or to put at least 25% of your deferred pay into uh, the products you manage. Our team tends to put over 90%. So for me, you know, we're putting our skin in the game every day in the products we're managing for our clients at CounterPoint Global, and we're looking for companies that do the same thing that are owner-operators, not just um, people that are caretakers of something that's already been built. And not not to disparage some of those situations, but I think the more interesting component is trying to find that, identify cultures that act like owners, like we do. And I think that that's really appealing. And you know, when you can combine that with high growth potential and big, you know, addressable markets, obviously that's even more appealing. So much of your process sounds very much bottoms-up stock picking, fundamental analysis of different companies' businesses. How much do you pay attention to what's going on in the world top-down? I I don't get the sense that you're hanging on every Fed release or every, uh, you know, macroeconomic release like ISM or um, international deficit. Uh, Do you guys factor top-down right. into your process very much? So, um, yeah, we're mostly focused at what people would call bottom-up, so making company-specific investments. Um, like a few things that come to mind when you ask that question. I mean, one is, I think I'd be remiss, and, and anybody would be interested for all asset classes in general, but the fact that we've 
had a tailwind behind the you know a lot of pretty much every asset class over the last 30 years with interest rates kind of going from where they had been to where they are today and that's partly something that sort of lifts all asset classes to some degree and probably does help companies on the margin more intellectually you can understand that if that that have high growth in the future and where the values on the come as opposed to something that's like right today current currently there is some something that might be more of a hard asset so i think interest rates obviously matter the problem is we don't know what they're going to do <laughs> you know and so um you know are they going to go up are they going to go down and if they do you know why uh, we don't know what circumstances might lead to the, those things happening or why the fed might do what it does so i think uh, it, no, given that we, you know, our mindset is that some of that's so unknowable that it's better to focus on specifics that you can control. Um, and in the process, when we look at our companies and play around with the sensitivities of what they could be worth, we obviously need a cost of capital. We need an alternative to look at, and that includes other companies and asset classes, including the risk-free rate. Um, we've tried over time to not give a whole lot of benefit to the fact that interest rates are as low as they are today. And Generally, we don't. But, you know, when I play around with the sensitivities of values of the companies, it is a consideration because it's also possible to stay where they are. So it's a probably a long-winded way of saying, you know, we're not that focused on the macro. It does matter in the sense that things like interest rates represent fundamental alternatives and cost of capital. And they, it's a consideration in, in how you think about company valuation, whether you like it or not. Uh, having a strong view about what's going to happen in those uh, to those variables, though, I think it's some people might do that well. It's not a part of our DNA. And I think that the, the only problem with that thought process is that, you know, if, if, if you think interest rates are going up and you're going to build a portfolio around that thought, if you're wrong, you've got to change your whole portfolio. And what we try to do is collect unique companies that have, you know, exposure to many different end markets ultimately that can be hopefully a lot bigger than the market caps are today uh, in excess of hopefully the alternatives and let some of the rest of that all play out. Um, as a, and really, you know, it's, it's control what you can control, and uh, it just fits the way we think about the world, which is more individual judgments as opposed to kind of larger takes on asset classes and things of that nature, which I think aren't that useful to us or not that useful. If you tell me the market's overvalued in aggregate, it doesn't help me make a decision about the one company I'm looking at. It might be really undervalued, right? It actually might hurt you to think the market's overvalued 10 years ago. And so, you know, I think the market's overvalued right now, so I'm not going to buy Amazon even though I'm interested. So, if anything, sometimes I think the discourse in the industry around these aggregate notions of, you know, high-cost mutual funds are bad or, you know, the market's overvalued or, like, in hindsight, those things are always obvious, but it almost hurts your ability to make individual decisions. So again, we're really focused on the individual company decisions. Hmm, quite, quite interesting. So as long as we're discussing decision making and the thought process behind the selection, let's talk about uh, someone you brought in recently to be the head of consilient research at Counterpoint Global, Michael Mobison. How significant is that role uh, and how closely do you work with him? Look, we've known Michael for a long time. Uh, he's, he, in fact, when I was at business school, I was exposed to some of his great content and great, you know, uh, thinking um, uh, at Columbia. And uh, you know, we've always respected a lot of what he has to offer. And uh, you know, in fact, when he was on the sell side, he would he would kind of guest star in our in our team meetings at, few, at least a few times a year because we wanted to know what was kind of going on in, in, in his mind. And and you know, I think reading Michael's research and being a part of it now. It's kind of like eating your Wheaties. It really helps, you know, you prepare <laughs> for making good decisions, you know, and, and thinking and, and thinking about thinking. And, and I think that, that there's a lot of utility there. Um, when I think back over time, for as an example, actually, you know, I think when Michael was at Lake Mason with Bill Miller, they had – Bill had you – know, particularly was uh, had a thesis about Amazon, which wound up being, you know, one of the only things that mattered over the last 20 years in equity markets. And they had a, this whole concept around how Amazon was being looked at as, uh, or, or kind of misclassified. People were looking at it as a retailer, and it was really a logistics company. And Michael, I think you should talk about that as, you know, um, you know, misclassification or looking at, um, at, you know, circumstances versus attributes. You know, the, sort of the mistakes we make as, as decision makers, we got to put something into a bucket in order to compare it to things. 
But sometimes that initial decision is wrong. And when it is, that can lead to a pretty big misperception. So this is the kind of stuff that, you know, Michael's about. It really fits the intellectual curiosity, which is a big part of the, the, you know, the team. And a lot of people talk about intellectual curiosity and talent development. I think bringing Michael in just is a real natural thing for us to do, given what we're about. And already, you know, it, it, you know, a year into it, we're seeing great benefits. You know, Mike's, Michael's also a great coach for people earlier in their careers um, to, to, to just become not just good analysts but good thinkers and decision makers. And he's rebooted our, you know, our book club. We've had some great authors in. So it's a, it, knowing the team DNA and, and what Michael does, it's a very, it was a very natural thing. We were happy to have the opportunity to do it. And uh, consilient research is basically the idea that, you know, exploring ideas, not just in the day-to-day financial world, but in other domains can lead you to, you know, maybe coming up with good decision models or, or rules of thumb or help you think differently about some of the things that are occurring in the financial world. And, you know, Michael's had a long history doing that first, first Boston. And so, and he called his piece consilient, the consilient observer. So, we just said, well, why don't we just reboot that because it was so great. And so we hope to continue to benefit from his insights and share them with people in the community as well. Yeah, that, that was definitely a good hire. And I see him as a very good fit into what you guys do. You, you mentioned Bill Miller. Bill Miller has brought up what he sees as a problem in part of the active uh, world of investing. And it's what he describes as closet indexers and low active share. I think his active share is pretty much in the 90s. I'm going to guess your active share across uh, the big funds are, are going to be pretty close, right? You don't really seem to look very much like any of the indexes out there. Yeah, we have a wide range of products, but you're, we're in the 80s and some in the 90s, so it just depends on each one. And then part of that really is about the, the benchmarks. Some of them are super concentrated, so that can affect those metrics. But yeah, we're 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 at the extreme, uh, similarly to what you just characterized. Yep, and Bill. and we really haven't spent much time delving into valuations. And I want to ask you a, a very big picture question. We've seen valuations cre- creep up not just over the past thirty years of falling interest rate, but over the past go back to World War II, valuations have continued to rise since then. How much of this has been a significant undervaluation of the economies of scale of technology and how digital can grow with far less needed capital and labor? Yeah, I think uh, it's a good point. You know, we talked earlier about how markets can change over time, and that's why rules of thumb are, are you know, sometimes useful for periods of time, but how they, you know, often can can become actually they can become a problem right they can become just like expertise it's useful in when the world's not changing too quickly but if there is a change over time expertise can become a real uh, a problem you, you know you suddenly uh, are you know are, are have to jettison your way of thinking and, and learn new things and most people are often hesitant to do that i think the, the constituencies in the market today and you know meaning the the the, the earnings or the cash flow that sort of backs up Ultimately, the, the 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 valuation of let's call it the market. Even though I don't love talking in aggregate, frankly, but I, there's no question that it's driven more from a more of a capital light um, vantage point than maybe when you look back over time and the history of markets. And there were times when railroads were 50 percent, and you know, so certainly today's market is is very different, and the earnings of it, maybe the quality of those earnings might be different, and, and they're puts and takes. To be fair, I don't want. There's a, it could be a very long discussion, but the, I think that, um, you know, I think that is a very, I think this whole concept that of, of tangible versus intangible, um, and Michael's actually written about that a bit and is really focused on as we speak, Michael Mobison, is, is, is something that um, most people haven't appreciated enough, probably, um, uh, that, you know, earnings um, and, and the way companies make investments have, have changed, and that has that definitely affects some of these rules of thumb that maybe people have thought about for many years. So, you know, again, the last thing I'll say here, though, I'm reacting to, to the question, which is really kind of about the market. And I think you always have to be a little careful about market aggregate discussion because, again, our DNA and what we're focused on is company investing and, and finding those unique situations. And, 
if you get too, too if you spend too much of your time on on the aggregation of, of of trends or the aggregate trends and predicting them and discussing them, I think it's a little bit gets you off track. At least from it does for us from what our what our core mission is. Quite quite interesting. So you mentioned the aggregate. Let, let's get a little more granular and drill down into at least those five funds. I, I love the names of these: Advantage, Growth, Insight, Discovery, <laughs> and Inception. I mean, kudos to whoever was putting putting those titles together. Um, they range. The smallest one is about half a billion. The biggest one is almost fifteen billion. And right. they've all done super well this year. Advantage up more than 50%, growth up over 85%, insight is almost 88%, discovery is 99%, inception is 72%. What are the differences of these five um, funds? Is it U.S. versus overseas? Is it small versus large? Or are those buckets just not relevant? Oh, no. So, you know, um, ultimately, so it's a great question because – I talked about how the team, you know, I think a differentiator for us is that we're investors first and this sort of category stuff happens at the end of the process. And I think most of the industry is start off with a product or a category and build a team around it. And obviously there's strengths and we could be strengths and weaknesses to both those strategies. I think in a world where most people are compartmentalized, it's better to have some perspective because you're, you're kind of going against the grain and maybe picking up things that, that, they, that they can't. Um, in terms of these individual products, Inception is our small cap product. And so ultimately when we find companies that have market caps in the range of the general, the Russell 1000 growth small cap arena, that's the home for which we can take, with which we can take advantage of hopefully those, those insights or ideas. Discovery is really more of a mid-cap growth strategy um, in the sense of the market cap range. And by the way, both are U.S. and the ones we're discussing here are all U.S. as well, centric. And then where large cap is, or growth, sorry, excuse me, growth is a large cap growth strategy by market cap. And, and so is advantage, but the only difference there is that we, do two, we have two different constraints. Growth can own whatever it wants in terms of opportunity set, whereas advantage from a competitive advantage standpoint, when we look at why a company is unique, like is it network effect or scale or switching costs or brand or, you know, these, the, the designations we look at there, we, we, we stay away from intellectual property-driven, um, technology-driven competitive advantages in advantage, and we, and we tend to own companies a little bit later in their life, or not in the early part of their life cycle. So it's a different variation for that product of, of our large-cap growth thinking. Um, but at the end of the day, and, and, and as you said with the names, I mean, the names were really – what we want to do is not be large-cap growth fund or small-cap growth fund. And, I think great investing is, you know, you have to define yourself to a degree, but if you limit yourself through these designations, you're doing a disservice to the people that have allocated your money. Because, you know, if I take a real big step back and about the industry, you know, the real goal is to beat an alternative. And the alternative is really probably the S&P 500. And, you know, if you're really good at doing a part of that world that still doesn't beat the S&P 500, and you haven't given yourself enough flexibility to do that, then at some point your asset class is not that useful or might be considered, you know, uh, null and void or not, not worth pursuing. So what we try to do is name the funds um, in ways that are indicative of the team culture but also aren't – and have tendencies, like I said, these buckets at the end of the process, the, 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 the conventional uh, consultant thinking. But where there's still more flexibility in running inception than there is if I call it, we call it small cap growth because there are more constraints w- with that naming from a 40 act legal standpoint. And so leave yourself flexible. Be who you got to know who you are in this business, but you got to leave enough flexibility to evolve. And I think that's hopefully something culturally we've been able to achieve. But part of that is even what you know the name of your funds or even the name of your team. So. Counterpoint Global, the idea behind Counterpoint simply, there's two actually two meanings. One is Counterpoint is often used, thought of as the other side of the argument, you know, and so it connotes that willingness to be different, not always contrarian, because that I think is generally wrong, but you have to be willing to stick your neck out in order to succeed from time to time. 
So that's that's the symbolism there. But the other meaning in music is counterpoint. Well, counterpoint in music is when you take unique melodies or voices, and you when you that are sound great on their own, but when you layer them together, you get a you know a situation where the the outcome the output's better than the sum of the parts. So like in a musical, and usually each character has its own theme, and at some point at the end of the first act or the, or the final act, those themes kind of intermingle musically at some point, and you're kind of like, wow. The audience feels like, wow, that's amazing. Um, or like, you know, She's Leaving Home by the Beatles, or uh, I've Got a Feeling by the Beatles. These are cases where there are multiple melodies happening that stand alone. But so hopefully from a team standpoint, that whether it's our ideas that we can put into different products where they fit, or whether it's the people or the way we can combine our products, hopefully there's a benefit of counterpoint, which is creating something that exceeds the sum of the parts. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. I know I only have you for a certain limited amount of time, so I want to jump to my favorite questions that I ask <laughs> all of our guests and see what uh see what's going on in your life these days. Let's start out with streaming. Tell us what you're watching either on Netflix or Amazon or anything you happen to be listening to on podcasts. What's keeping you entertained during uh this period of work from home? <laughs> Um, the, the series I just finished, and I blew right through it, I thought it was and not super well-known, I think, but might have flown on the radar. It's, it's called Halt and Catch Fire, and it's available on Netflix, and it's kind of like a Mad Men version of the uh, gaming world, the video gaming world in the 80s, and mm. how that, that environment went from the 80s and what was happening with, you know, the Ataris of the world and and the, and the, the, all the early PCs and uh, and then and then the evolution of that up until sort of the the advent of, of the internet and you follow these characters um, through that journey so it's really interesting to watch the progression you know it's, I think it's really well done from an entertainment standpoint but it also happens to fit you know things we're interested in in terms of you know, the, how technology has evolved over time. Um, my wife and I are also enjoying Ted Lasso on Apple Plus. So good. <laughs> yeah. I just I just read it was renewed for a second season, which I'm thrilled about. Good. <laughs> it's awesome. It, it's funny you mentioned Mad Men. I missed that when the first time it went around, and my wife and I has just started streaming it a few weeks ago, and I had to find someone who lived through that era to say, hey, how hyperbolic and exaggerated is this? And the consensus seems to be, no, that's pretty much how it was like, which is kind of shocking. It's literally a different universe, you know, than, than where we are today. But, uh, no, I, we, I enjoyed Mad Men, too. It's, it's, it's a, there's some really great stuff in there. Tell us about some of your early mentors who helped to shape your career. Well, you know, I was, I mean, very lucky. Um, I, you know, my dad has always been a great influence, Um he was an investor as well. He had his own firm for many years, but just and and what what we do is very different than what he did back then. And partly that is opportunity set driven. But really, my dad was, has always been a really great role model in terms of how he handles himself and how he, you know, is very thoughtful and he finds, you know, he's really able to find the positives in other people, which has really been uh, valuable for me, um, uh, you know, in my life. Um, in terms of specifically in investing as well uh, certainly helped me there as well but that when i think more specifically to my career um you know i took a class at columbia business school with a guy named john griffin who uh used to be the president of tiger the hedge fund and had his own hedge fund blue ridge uh, capital for a long time and you know if you take and that happened to me in his first class which is very lucky uh, that he taught first class that he taught and he you know if you leave his class uh, and you haven't gotten passionate about investing afterward then you probably shouldn't be in the field. So uh, John has just had a great way of communicating passion and, and, and sort of uh, establishing what it takes to, to, to make it in the business, I think. So that was a really, he's been a real valuable person for me. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot of people in the industry I admire. Uh, we talked about Bill Miller and his willingness to be different. Um, and uh, you talked about Will Danoff and you know, who I'm friendly with. And I really, you know, think he's, you know, been been unbelievable over, over the course of his career. It's fun to, to 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 touch base with him on things. Other people like Ron Barron, I admire mostly from afar. I think he's been really good at what he does. And um, 
Henry Ellenbog used to be a T row, now he runs durable, is another person. Bailey Gifford as a organization, James Anderson have also been great. So sometimes the mentorship happens just by, you know, sometimes being friendly with but also in addition uh, just, you know, kind of learning from people from afar, and some of those people uh, have been influential for me. Hmm. Quite interesting. Tell us uh, what you're reading. What are some of your all-time favorite books, and, and what are you reading currently? Sure. Um, so my favorite all-time book probably might be, it's probably The Art of Learning, which is by a guy named Josh Waitzkin, who um, was, uh, you know, the subject of the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer which is about the young chess prodigy who might be the next great chess player from the United States. And the book's about what it was like to be him during that time frame and his journey as a chess player. And eventually he went on to be, I think, the Tai Chi push hands champion of the world, which was a whole different domain where he, he excelled in addition to chess. And, um, you know, but really I'd say the heart of the book is about uh, this idea of having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, the idea that, you know, be willing to fail and try new things and learn from it as opposed to getting too wrapped up in your current identity and having that limit your ability to learn as a person. Um, and, I'm, I, you know, I certainly know what that's like. I think probably most people, if they think about themselves, <laughs> will can find themselves doing a lot of fixed mindset things. So just the concept of trying to trying to be somewhere open to new things and, and iterate and, as a learning style, I was really, for me, it was actually a really big uh, help to me in my life. And I probably read that about 15 years back, uh, but I would highly recommend it. Um, what we're currently reading, frankly, I don't read a lot of books as much as I used to because there's so much material investment related that I like to read. And But, you know, we do have a, the book club that Michael uh, rebooted at the, for our team, Michael Modison. Uh, this year we just had two people in. The first one was a guy named Michael Kearns, who is the um, – uh, you know, actually is a, is a consultant or, sorry, advisor for Morgan Stanley, but he wrote a book called The Ethical Algorithm. And it's, it's really about the pluses and minuses of algorithms and, you know, where they can be strong and, and benefit us, you know, uh, in society and how they can be harmful. And I thought that's a really, that was great framing and good, good, uh, a good topic for the team. But then, you know, we also had uh, David Epstein come in who wrote Range, and range is kind of the other side of the Malcolm Gladwell argument about 10,000 hours equals expertise or mastery. It's more about cases where people don't declare what they're going to do till a little bit later in life, like Roger Federer in tennis, for, as an example, and, uh, you know, instead of like the Tiger Woods model of, you know, and playing, literally playing golf right, right out of the crib. And really interesting thinking there around, um, you know, the benefits of, you know, having broader perspective before you get too narrow. And that resonates us with our team, too, based on some of the things we talked about today, just having that, uh, being able to cultivate perspective in a world where there's a lot of expertise. Our whole industry is based around expertise, so I think often what's missing is, you know, being able to connect things between areas of expertise, and hopefully that's one place we're set up to do that as a team. Hmm. Really interesting. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in a career in asset management? Um, most, well, actually very similar to, to what we just uh, talked about previous in the previous question, but, you know, most jobs start off, uh, you know, in that sort of expert, you know, you're given a ta very specific task. And I think that, um, you know, that's just the nature of how the system is set up and, you, know, you, you follow a sector or an industry. I mean, when I was at J.P. Morgan on the sell side, I just got to follow EMP companies, companies that explore and produce for ener energy and oil and gas, excuse me. And so, you know, it's great to dive in and become an expert, and there's a lot of value, like, in that learning process. But to the degree you can complement that with broadening your, your learning and not just be so narrow, When um, I think there can be benefits to kind of pursuing that. And Today, in today's world, there's so many sources for, for doing that. You know, you can use stuff like Twitter to your advantage, or there's these ways if you want to be a learning machine, you can, you can find Internet resources that will really uh, throw a lot of interesting stuff at you and hopefully round out your perspective if you've really been put into a narrow position. So that would be my first instinct. Huh, quite, quite interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today 
that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first starting out? Probably everybody learns in math class or at some point in their life, you know, compound annual growth, you know, and and you can see when you're you're doing it that it's a powerful thing. But uh, I think, you know, as I've gotten, you know, uh, further on in my life, uh, you know, and I think we try to, certainly professionally, but in, in many ways in my life, try, you try to take advantage of those, you know, the, the developing habits that will lead to good things down the road and making investments today that will benefit you later. Like, but I, I would say I wish I had had an even greater appreciation of that earlier in my life. I mean, somebody like Warren Buffett, the real great investors, I would say, you know, probably really get that uh, very early in life. And he's somebody who's just started young, and that time is such an advantage. So just that, just a, a really great, you know, even better awareness of those, that concept in hindsight uh, is something that I always try to highlight to younger people because while I knew about it a little bit mathematically, I probably didn't, didn't focus on how that can really benefit you, whether it's financially or whether it's even habit formation and what it leads to down the road. It might be your health or some skill you want to develop. So so I'd say compound annual growth and really taking that to heart and, and making it part of your, uh, your DNA. Thank you, Dennis, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Dennis Lynch, head of Morgan Stanley's Counterpoint Global. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out all of our previous such discussions. We have almost 400. You can find those at Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review at Apple iTunes. You can sign up for our free daily reads. That's at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the team who helps put these conversations together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Marufal is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.